Jesse Stratton, welcome to the 525 Records Podcast. Thanks, Elliot. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. We are live from Los Angeles, live from the end of the world, <laughs> rolling hot. Hollywood's a fascinating place. Uh, as a kid, I always wanted to move here to be a rock star. Did you really? That was a, that was a goal? A big goal. It was. It always was the embodiment of anybody that didn't want to work a nine to five job, <laughs> and uh, you know, become rich and famous through the arts. I dropped out of high school because I was going to be a rock and roll guitar player. Why, <laughs> why do I need a college degree? You know. Wait, now I'm I'm learning something new. I didn't realize that you dropped out of high school. Well, I, in California, they have what's called a proficiency exam, and at 15, you can take a test. To allow you to escape the nightmare that is California public high school. But, you know, yeah, we were uh, several times going to run away as teenagers to come to Hollywood. Um, and, you know, that reminds me recently, I played, uh, you remember Randy Newman? Oh, yeah. That song, I love LA. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a big Lakers, uh, you know, theme song. But watch that video today. I was texting, I was like, this this video and song is going to be canceled any day now <laughs> due to its toxic masculinity. It's it's just all about chicks and it's just hot chicks yeah. and, you know, um, the themes in it, you know, just, it's frightening because it was totally accepted at yeah. the time. Yeah. And, uh, but you, you don't see it for 30 years, time change, and then before you know it, oh my God, this thing is a sexist, complete toxic piece of shit. It's true. I mean, we're, it seems like we're waking up... Uh, over and over again, every day you wake up and realize that you've been acting badly uh, for your whole life. What you thought was funny isn't funny, and and you then and you think I've learned, I progressed, uh, I know how uh, I know how to behave, and then the next day you wake up again, like oh my, well I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't have been thinking that, I shouldn't have thought this. It's interesting. I mean, I enjoy that. I enjoy being challenged in that way. You know, constantly, you know, coming up against the new paradigm is interesting. You know, know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a whole topic I wanted to get into. Oh, boy. I was saving it for later, but we're going to jump right into it. Okay. Have you ever seen the movie Bagger Vance? I have not. No. Um, You've seen Donnie Darko. That, yes. I have seen Donnie Darko a couple times. I haven't seen any of these recently, but there's a podcast that I absolutely love that was talking about this the very thing today. Um, I hope I pronounced this right. Please correct me. The Bhagavad, the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> Bhagavad Gita, yeah. Carlos Castaneda. Yes. Um, the illusion that freedom from choice is what it's all about. A choice is really an illusion. You can watch a movie like Bagger Vance and it can be on one level in the ego mind Uh all about free will and choices but on a much deeper level um it's about the exact opposite the whole idea that um as you become spiritually awake you start to let go of material reality and possessions and the things that you were passionate about you don't care about anymore Uh it's sort of the death of passion is a feature of your spiritual enlightenment Uh you you start to realize you know what is this reality you know death is the only thing that's certain you live in fear of it your entire life but when you like a samurai the samurai's creed was if you have a choice between life or death always choose death right the the buddhist notion of reincarnation that you know humans are the top of the spiritual food chain and if you screw up you go back to being an animal whatever 
I don't well, know how the animals feel about that, to quote the podcast. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You, uh, you talk, we're, t- we're here in Los Angeles where people are uh, striving either because they're insane or because they actually are talented to, uh, you know, quote unquote, achieve their dreams, which is generally just to get uh, their idea out, right? Uh, so, yeah, if that's true, if, if spiritual evolution means the giving up of all hoped for things, then... That's a that's a difficult thing to do because does that mean if I have a if I have a story that I think the world needs to hear uh, that in order for me to quote unquote evolve does that mean letting go of the uh, striving to get that out the not writing it down the not telling people it does that mean that that story goes away and then I don't know we end up at some very Buddhist thing where the only art is just like a beautiful field and we look at it turn away and walk away I don't know that's it's weird. But the idea that you kind of accept reality as is and you're powerless, really, you know, it's like holding back the ocean with sure. a two by four, but you still don't, you still make the conscious changes you can in your life, a very small level. You know what's right. You try to do it, but you realize that, you know, it just, it's okay, mm-hmm. you know, and letting go of your material possessions be like a lot of near death experience people will tell you when they come back that. Oh, I just, all of a sudden, I didn't care about this place at all. It's just my kids, everything that really meant something to me, vaporized. And mm-hmm. for that brief little escrow, I didn't care about any of that stuff. And it was free, and it, it felt great. It felt liberating. I think that's kind of in the same vein. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, like time itself. There was a, He had a great analogy. When you're on a train, you're still, and the scenery's whizzing by you. So the perception is, is that, you know, you're the scenery's moving and you're still right. And if you think about time like that, it's very similar. Um, like if you go for a walk trying to get to a place where you're just like you are on the train, you're, you're conscious that you're moving, but it's not you that's moving. It's the world moving around you, you know, and if time is linear and we're reincarnated, you're multiple people at different points in time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's, uh, yeah, it's always been my biggest fear that the universe is just some brain running through permutations, just seeing how uh, the human experience can be either crushing or or liberating or joyful or terrifying, uh, depending on which mind it chooses to observe at any given time. And I'm always horrified that I might be the the particular vessel of, of crushing terror and depression or, you know, so what if I'm Job, you know, what if, what right. if the supercomputer doing that these algorithms trying to see like, what would happen to an individual if we did everything terrible to them? I was like, please don't let me be that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, like you were talking about the, um, you know, screwing up over and over again as a human, you know, you try to do the right thing and then you wake up over and over again yeah and it's like this path this evolutionary path yep. that you and you know people fear death they you know they fear the death of their body but it's really you know the, the thing they would fear is not the death it's what happens after that right you know the character's name in bagger vance is randall juna and there's something in the bhagavad gita of arjuna and he's starting a war that he doesn't realize or comes to realize it was, you know, was out of his control the whole time. And so that was the theme I was trying to get across. But I, I was hoping maybe you were more versed in this. I, 
than I was. <laughs> when uh, it comes, you could enlighten me. Well, you know, when it comes to uh, the Bhagavad Gita, I'm not, I am not uh, actually. Uh, I haven't actually read it. I and the closest I came to experiencing um, any sort of reading of that book was at uh, Lilith Fair, I think, in like 1996, when one of the uh, one of the Hari Krishnas came up and tried to force it into my hands but i never did right. read it the um but the death of the ego is a very prevalent theme when you take dmt when you take mushrooms sure. any kind of that stuff um you know you, you have the strange ego death and the things just don't matter to you anymore and it's interesting it is yeah no it, it's fascinating the concept of of letting go of ego is at once terrifying and and yet uh yeah, like you said, uh, when people have near-death experiences, they cease to care about things like their children and stuff like that. On one side, it's horrible. On the other side, it must be so liberating to let go of those those threads, you know? I'm, like, what is this place? What, mm-hmm. what are we all doing here, you know? Well, that's what it is. I, I mean, are we, you know, the same way you're tied familially and genetically to your offspring and you're forced by the uh, mandate of nature to love them and care for them. I mean, the same way when we're waking up and realizing, oh, that Randy Newman song isn't really funny anymore. We're, we're putting, uh, we're feeling the strings of culture, you know, tugging at us in a certain way, saying, love this, don't love this, let go of this, come to this. It's, and we have to just figure out whether or not we agree or want to take a stand against it. Last night, uh, in preparation for this, I was on the iPad and I rented a movie. Uh-huh. Its title is 37, A Final Promise. Oh, yeah. It um, stars, I, I don't want to butcher his last name, so help me out. Randall Battenkoff. Randall Battenkoff. Yep. He, write, he wrote, directed, mm-hmm. and starred in this. Yep. But you're also a big part of the writing process. Yes. I remember living in Vegas, you sent me the screenplay, Mm -hmm. and I read through it, and I was so proud and happy because you wrote me in as a character. Yes, I did. The movie is about a band, a rock band in Hollywood, who's, they're all rich and famous, and the bass player is Elliot Cox, who, that's my real name, and the screenplay goes to describe him in great detail, Yeah, and it's very accurate. (laughs) However, you know, due to editing... He's in a couple of scenes, yeah. doesn't have a lot of dialogue, yeah. and looks nothing like me. <laughs> but that was a big moment. You know, 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. you had just moved to Hollywood. Yep. What, like, you're living in Chicago. Right, yes. And you say, I'm going to make the leap. I'm going to move to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Like, what What did it for you? What, like, threw you over the edge? Well, I was I was thinking about moving. I mean, I'd been doing a lot of writing in Chicago and uh, um, practicing my craft, but sort of going nowhere. You know, it's sort of like the Pentagon where you create something, but then it never sees the light of day by virtue of never really actually trying to, like, bring it into the world, you know, show people, try to sell it, you know. Um, I thought, well, Wes, is, Wes Cardino, our friend Wes is, is out here he's working he or he wasn't he was at AFI at the American Film Institute at the time um I helped on a project that he did uh on the writing side of things um I won't say I wrote it because you can't write a project for uh AFI um if you're not a student but I did help and uh it did pretty well um it went on to do fairly well and I was like well 
you know, that's that's a that's a good thing. It shows I can actually I can actually put something out from the in the Hollywood, you know, from Hollywood, and it will be recognized as at least decent. So I went out to kind of get a lay of the land, and Wes hooked me up. Um, he'd been in Africa shooting a film with Randall Battenkoff in it. Um, and Randall had approached him, I believe, and said, like, I have a project that I'd like to do, and I'd like you to shoot it. And it laid nascent for a little while, and then uh, he sent, he being Randall, sent Wes the script. And he said, I, you know, it's it's kind of there, but I'd like to get someone's eyes on it. And it just so happened that I was visiting West, just kind of seeing what, what, you know, LA was like. And West was like, I have a friend who's in town that does really good script notes, you know? And so sure enough, uh, I got hired for an, I think, and I think, uh, I think there was some pay involved. It wasn't a lot, but there was some pay for it's me. It's an indie movie. Yeah. It's an indie film. Um, so I did the notes. I, I went through it line by line and kind of came up with what I thought worked, what I thought didn't. It was based on a true story and it was a romance. And, uh, I had a follow-up call with Randall and the other um, co-writer of the original screenplay, uh, Guy Blues, and they liked my notes. They were very thankful, very gracious. It was awesome. It was a really great experience. And then they called me back like an hour later and asked if I would do the second draft of the script, kind of like a page one rewrite based on their stuff. And so I was like, oh, I'm here. I've done it. You know, I'm in. And um, yeah, I just decided, why not? So Randall, who directs, stars, yeah. and is also a writer on yes. the project, he's the the band is very big. Their uh, name is Wendigo, Wendigo. as I recall, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a love story, very dark, but also very um, spiritual. Yeah, in a sense that you know, death is a part of life, right? And we're all destined for the same thing, right? At the end of the day, yeah. I think the ending is particularly good but to bring people up to speed uh it's titled 37 a final promise mm-hmm. the main character which randall plays is the singer right in the band and he has a younger brother who dies a very tragic death at a very young age and it turns out his death even though he had a horrible terminal disease um it was actually randall's character who was adam yeah who administers the final dose of morphine or right. whatever it is to you know and it, there's um there's a corollary. Metallica had a very famous video entitled One. Oh, yeah. And it was based on, I believe, the same book. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about a soldier who loses his arms, legs, eyes, ears, everything. And he's he can't speak, and they're trying to keep him alive. Yeah. And then when he finally is able to communicate, he says, please kill me. Yeah. And it's uh, Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trump. Thank you. Yep. I'm glad you know that. Yep. Yeah. And it's referenced in the movie, and, uh, you know... It's um, but you know what I'm really curious about is you know what the state of that script was before you got involved because sure. Adam, the character in the movie played by Randall, right, has a lot of interesting tattoos. Yes, one of them is a 37 over his heart, right, which is referenced in the film right. as oh, and this is where if you're not into Kabbalah and Gematria, mm-hmm. it gets a little you get lost a little bit in. Hebrew, every letter has a number and it's, you know, synonymous. He's got a Kabbalah tree of life on his left arm. He's got a very interesting tattoo on his other arm and he's got 37 on his chest, which is three times seven, which equals 21, which when you reduce it even further is another three. These are very powerful numbers in this kind of vein. So how much of that was your injection 
the well, you know, it's uh, the the true thing is that the person that that script is based on, and it is based on a true story, uh, actually did have thirty seven. I don't believe it was on their heart. I could be wrong about that. I think it was on the arm, but. Uh, the conceit is that the character and this person in real life was saying, I'm going to, at 37 years old, I'm going to kill myself. And I, I presume that a lot of people just kind of laughed at that, just like thinking it was ridiculous, but it was really a real oath. So that tattoo was real, and it played a part that, that I'm going to kill myself at 37 played a part in the original story. It was a very pivotal thing. Um, but what, what I wanted to bring to it because I'm I get down into the supernatural horror thing. I've always been like into the occult, just not that I'm a you know practicing occultist, but I've always been interested in it. I was trying to inject that into the story a little bit, and so in looking at 37, I realized, oh my god, there's some significance here that works in the story. And so yes, I, I injected the tr- the tree of life and stuff. But. And well, if I could in, in interject here, um, the character in the film has a very interesting symbol tattoo that I have never seen. Mm-hmm. And I like to. I, I'm a passing hobbyist when it comes to occult symbology. And if I could interject again, yeah. occult just means hidden. Sure, it's hidden yes. knowledge. Yes. When there's an eclipse, it's you know one body occulting the other right. it's, a, it's an actual term right we've been so programmed in our day and age to think of a cult as evil yeah yeah there's no satan involved in any of this so. it's it, yeah and it's you know it's a path um of knowledge right. and hidden knowledge in yeah. particular and the secrets of the universe mm-hmm. right but the character has basically a pyramid an upside down pyramid surrounded by a circle yeah enclosed in a square mm-hmm. which you know any if you if you're hip to masonic symbology yeah. it's you know the compass in the square squaring the circle is a very famous mathematical mm-hmm. problem very famous scene in another movie called apollo 13 yeah. where in order to save the astronauts they have to put a square peg in a round hole right. this is all old stuff yeah. so talk me through that symbol well that i believe you know when you when you do a movie or when i should say when someone conceives of a movie and i'm not i'm not saying i'm that someone i'm just saying any screenwriter or director who wants to bring something to the stage uh they hopefully surround themselves with very talented people in every department uh that would have been something that the makeup person or possibly the wardrobe person came up with from their own uh, investigation. So as far as the significance of, of the particular tattoo that you're talking about, is actually probably something that someone else came up with. I don't actually remember the tattoo. And this is what fascinates me about this movie, which <clears throat> is available on iTunes for rent. You can go watch it. Um, highly recommend it. It's It's dark. But if you're into music, you know. Uh, the other thing I was going to get at was the Malibu. Who had that Malibu house? Oh, that was a beautiful house. Uh, I don't remember. It was rented by the production. As I am, don't quote me on this. I believe that whoever built that house, and here's a little bit of, uh, you know, someone wants to get super rich. I think the person that owned that house or built that house uh, actually produced, designed and produced sex toys. So that is a house that was built by vibrators. Interesting. Yeah. It was a gorgeous house. Yeah. Well, yeah. In, in the same kind of vein, there's a very famous album by the Red Hot Chili Peppers entitled Blood Sugar Sex Magic, mm-hmm. produced by Rick Rubin. Yeah. Uh, they rented Houdini's old mansion. And the, the parallels between magic and the occult are very, very yeah. thick. You know, the band in the film is kind of a metal band. They're yeah. very dark music. And I'm just wondering, 
I always wondered how much of that was you and how much of that was there before you got involved in the script. Yeah. And I, as I recall in the, in the original script, he was a musician, but it was not, it was not focused on that much. That's what I felt like needed to happen from reading the original script. Just like, there's a lot of things that this guy does. He's kind of a Renaissance man, but we need to focus on one thing. So I made him the the headliner of a group and I wanted, I wanted it to be dark. You know, I told him, look, dude, I know we can't get tool, you know, to do this album, but this is what I'm envisioning. I'm thinking of a, you know, sort of a prog rock, like super band, um, you know, very thoughtful in their approach to music and stuff. And so, yeah, I, that was something that I really, tried to bring to the to the second draft of the script it kind of adds a depth to his character that you know i don't think was there before but this is what uh, what i really want to get at is is randall on the same page as you on all this stuff or was was this all news to him uh he understood i mean i was very open with him and he was very uh god you can't ask for a better um a better first experience working firstly on one person's real story and another person's first draft being Randall's, you know, first draft. He was very open to what I was saying. And, and he, he's a, he's an actor. And so I think that he heard what I was saying. He read what was on the page and he interpreted it. Uh, so if you, if you saw it in the film, if you saw that coming through, then that's, that's him. Not, that's not me. And so, yeah, he's an actor. Is he also a musician? I don't believe so. No, no. I, I don't think any of the guys who are in the band are actually musicians. So where do, where does the inspiration come for Randall to generate that first draft of this band and musicians? Well, in the in the first draft, I don't believe that, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, band thing really wasn't in the first draft. Really? No. So talk me through the first draft. What is it about? Uh, the first draft is about the same thing. Um, I, I was coming at it not being from Hollywood. And this this is just this was just my interpretation at the time. Um, I felt like what needed to happen was we needed to see a very like soulful depiction of this protagonist character uh, that Randall is playing. And the first draft, to me as I was reading it for, you know, God, they could have filmed it and maybe I would have missed the mark entirely. But I felt like the character was just a little too, a little too Los Angeles. It was like he had a lot of money and he liked to show it off and he had, you know, his fingers in a whole lot of different things, which were all really cool. But I was like, we're making this character a little too cool, a little too perfect and just kind of also all over the board. He's rich and he's got, does get uh, all these different things. Let's just make him, a musician and the other in the in the first draft i believe he had a band but it was hardly referenced i mean in the movie the band is what kind of brings the center yeah. to the table right and you know his uh he in the movie it definitely seems not like your typical la right douche you right know? he's very he's aware of la and he's yeah. enjoys all the excesses but he's not that's not what he's all about right you know Right. But there's a beautiful car in that movie. There is. It's a Porsche. Yes. 911. What, yes. Do you remember what year it was? Where did I you guys get that car? I can't remember. I'm not sure who scored that vehicle, but it was gorgeous. A sweet convertible. Yeah. There's a ton of shots of you guys driving up yeah. and down the PCH. Yeah. It's just... You have a car like that, you've got to use it. Yeah. Cinematic gold. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, I, I haven't seen the film in a long time because there are points at which I'm just like, you know, like anything, just like the music, you cringe when you hear parts of it and parts of it you're really like happy about. I thought that, you know, overall they did a really good job with yeah. the music. Um, I, for, I, I, you know, I read last night, I wanted to mention it, but I forget who, there was a series of people responsible for the original music. Yeah. And one of the songs is interestingly enough titled Q. Mm, which interesting I, recently because i'm into all kinds of crazy yeah. podcasts yeah. there's a fa- there's an obscure cult movie from the 70s called q the, the winged w- serpent you fucking seen this Dude, movie i know all things horror get yes. the fuck terrible. out of here yeah. i can't nobody's seen this well, movie i thought i was gonna surprise you no i know about that i mean i didn't have anything to do with the name of the song but i know the movie the movie Q, The Winged Serpent, uh-huh. is based in New York, and uh, it's some kind of flying serpent. Quetzalcoatl, I think. Likes or... to whack window washers, yeah. <laughs> and there's all these crazy cheap horror scenes of yeah. people on the street level getting splattered with blood from above and looking up, <laughs> and then before you know it, it's you know Q taking another one off. <laughs> but the, the symbology in that movie is like crazy yeah. in today's time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, interesting side. Note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that film was was fun. It was it was it was interesting um, to write in that darker material into a story that was going to turn dark. But one of the uh, scenes is they're getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, she she has ALS. Yes. tragically. Yes, which to get ALS, I've learned this now uh, through other reasons. But to be female and young yeah. and to get ALS, extremely rare. Yes. Usually you have about a three-year window. Yes. Um, the reason I know about ALS is because I watch a comedy podcast they mm. do from the comedy store on Sunset. It's called Kill Tony. And it's a very famous comedian, Tony Hinchcliffe. They bring up open micers, and if you do good enough, they make you a regular. Mm-hmm. And one of the regulars that was sort of made in yeah. mob terms last year is a guy that has ALS. Really? His name's Michael Lehrer. He's hilarious. He's from Queens, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, for some random thing, was my very first Twitter follower. I I only have nine followers, (laughs) so that says a lot. Uh, But because I'm such a huge Kill Tony fan, you know, I watch every week on Monday, 8 p.m. You know, he's an incredible writer. He writes a ton of really good stuff. One of the skits he wrote that was recently, uh, it was Jack Ruby's Steakhouse. Oh, God. During the plague... One of my favorite restaurants is still open. It's Jack Ruby's Steakhouse. Old world, traditional style Italian cuisine from the man who killed the man who killed the president. His actions may have been ordered by Jimmy Hoffa, but his dishes are, are all in a word, Ruby. Mobster, assassin, fall guy, we may never know. But even the Warren Commission can agree on this. You'll never have better garlic mashed potatoes. Zagat says, Jag Ruby sounds like a stage name, and these dishes are Ruby's stage, as well as the police basement where he gunned down Lee Harvey Oswald. What did Oswald know? Something about candy or the recipe to this tremendous ragu. We'll never know, so judge for yourself. Mobsters just like me and you, violent foodies. So you know it's going to be a good sauce. Um, another one is a lot of people don't know this, but on 9-11, the very first flight 
was American Airlines Flight 11. Mm-hmm. There was two very famous people that were supposed to be on that flight. One of them was Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. The other one was Seth MacFarlane. Oh, I didn't realize Seth MacFarlane was supposed to be. Yes. Okay. Nobody does. Okay. Nobody does that's not in t- balls deep into conspiracy yeah. like I am. Yeah. So he did another skit where what if Mark Wahlberg <laughs> <laughs> was on the plane uh-huh. single-handedly fought all the terrorists and you know took back control and you know i i can't do the impression it's hilarious you have to go check it out but it's very very funny so you know als is a horrible way yeah. to die it's yes. horrible and it's it takes a long time yeah it's very tragic who so does randall have some knowledge of AL, like wh- how do you give this character ALS? as i recall uh in uh, you know uh the in real life which is the bane of a writer's existence you know when someone writes a script that goes but in real life this happened in real life i believe uh the person who inspired that character had um, ms very similar uh, yeah very similar uh but it just seemed to me i mean i have some experience with ms because uh my high school girlfriend's mother had it so i just you know we've been together for a couple of years so i was seeing it and uh you know, I just was like, well, a lot of people know MS, but a lot of times it's not as uh, it, it it doesn't degrade the person as much as this particular situation was. So I, I just I looked into it. And I was like, let's let's just up the stakes for the average viewer so they can you know see a, a and understand immediately that this disease is incurable and and, and fatal. So I looked it up, and, and this is one of the things that was not in the first draft. It was not. It was I believe it was multiple sclerosis in the uh-huh. first draft. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and Scotty Thompson, who plays the girl who has it, I know uh, attended some. Um, I believe it was group therapy for people with the. Um, disease so she as a, you know she as an actress went into that it's um, startlingly accurate mm-hmm. uh, one of the first things that happens is you start to trip and fall down yeah that happens in the yeah. movie quite a bit yeah. it's a very big theme yeah. in the movie you know but the the rage against the dying of the light mm-hmm. scene yeah know, that was written in um yeah. you know everybody's gotta die right right and it's just a matter of when yep and it's, as dark as the movie is it's a celebration of life at right. the same time and especially the end with the dolphins mm-hmm. um, am i crazy because the end you know it's uh it's not really it's sort of implied that he's chasing his brother who you know he made this promise right. to into the ocean yeah. to sort of fulfill the promise yes. and then the very end credits it rolls it says uh, adam still lives in malibu right he's with the dolphins every yeah. day something to yeah. that to that extent yeah uh as I recall, there was a scene in the film that we couldn't shoot because of logistics, uh, but he takes um, Scotty's character out uh, in the ocean, and she, uh, there are dolphins out there, and she desperately wants to swim with them, but she's already sick at that point. He doesn't want to let her go in the water because he's afraid she's going to drown or whatever, but she insists and swims with them. And, you know, I just was like, uh, something about that seemed appropriate to me. It's the human human body entering an alien atmosphere and living yes. in it for a moment, you know, the way that you slip into death, you know, so but her, but she was able to swim in it and was surrounded by things that live in that place. And I, it, unfortunately, we never shot it. And so 
We also missed a big chance because we were during the wedding ceremony on the beach while we were setting up. We were almost ready to go. A pod of dolphins appeared out in the water. As they do in the Pacific between here and Catalina. Just jumping. And I was like, can we roll? And uh, you know, just we couldn't do it. But it would have been amazing. It would have been a great like. It might have. Yeah, it would have been a, a production value. Very big production value. But uh, yeah, it didn't happen, unfortunately. Having sailed to Catalina a number of times, it's very common for dolphins sure. to ride with yep. you uh, on the bow. Yep. That would have, you know. But the dolphin itself, you know, it's regarded as one of the more smart sure. uh, mammals. Yes. You know, they've got a surface to breathe. Yes. And just like we were talking about earlier about spiritual enlightenment, mm. um, the allegory of Plato's cave. Right. right? You know, you guys in a cave, that's all they know their whole life. One of them escapes, yep. sees the real world, much like a dolphin surfacing. Yeah can't possibly fathom outer space right it only knows the underwater right. world yet it has to come up to breathe every once mm-hmm. in a while to encounter this world yep. plato's cave analogy is it's so relevant today because the shadows on the wall consume the majority of people and to the point where there's they they don't want the outside world yep. they don't want to escape yep. the cave it's comfortable in there and when you do escape the cave and you try to tell the other people hey Look, come out here. Yeah. They kill you. Yeah, they're mad. Yeah, they, they cut you into pieces or put you on a cross. But dolphins, very famously, you know, they probably one of the few species that can actually communicate mm-hmm. with humans. They have their own songs, yep. their sonar. Yep. Really incredibly intelligent animals, yes. even though they live underwater. So, you know, to me, the metaphor is right. But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't, I mean, yeah, I, 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 for some reason that seemed important, and and I'm glad it, at least it it was it remained in in some in some way. I'm glad you brought the wedding scene because that's a beautiful segue. There's a a person that makes a cameo in this movie yeah. from a very famous band. Mm-hmm. One of used to be maybe still is one of my favorite bands, System of a Down. Yeah, love them or hate them, right. you know they're all Armenian. Yeah, uh, they are crazy live. Yes, um, they, you know. The music you can't knock. It's mm-hmm. it's incredible. Yeah. Um the bass player, Shavo, mm-hmm. is in the film. He plays the preacher. Yeah. He's fits the part perfectly. Yes. He's got the crazy good teeth. Yes. Uh, my favorite line though is, and I want to, this is what I'm dying to know uh-huh. if it was written or if it was improv. Okay. There's the wedding scene. He says, you know, something to the effect of let's thank Yahweh, Buddha, Jesus, Krishna. <laughs> yes. And then at the very end, he says system of a down. That's, that was definitely Shavo. Yeah, he came and he wanted to do that line. And it made the final cut. Oh, it's great. Yeah, of course. Were there any alternate takes without I don't that? believe so. I think he came I think he came, he said I want to say this. It was approved by Randall and I they may have taken a couple of uh, shot a t- couple of different takes, but it was the same every time. Yeah. And Shavo also, you know, as very involved in other film projects. Yeah. He's an actor. Yes financer director yep. all kinds of stuff yeah um, so he understood the process and he was he was very cool he just sat out and waited for waited for his time on screen and otherwise he was just sitting up on the deck and you could walk up and just sit and chat for a while he was a cool guy i just you know the last thing i think of when i go down the list of uh, yahweh elohim buddha <laughs> krishna <laughs> System, system of a, of a down. down okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> why not it could be Rocks, worse right? gods right yeah but it, you know, being that the characters in the movie are in a very similar band, mm-hmm. it might as well be System of a Down. Right. They're rich and famous, right. and, you know, played a lot. Yeah, Darren Malakian 
uh, gave guitar lessons. Uh, and there's some old footage of him. You know, he was a guitar teacher. Oh, you know, really? At one point, you know. But, you know, when Darren gets on stage, he's, like, not Darren anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. the his persona on stage, much like an actor or whatever, you know, it's just so intense and so crazy. Yeah. Whereas Serge is more kind of level-headed, mm-hmm. intellectual thinking. Shavo's just Shavo yeah. playing the bass. You know, the drummer's killer. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so a lot of parallels there, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, that was a. Uh, it was very cool to have but him on you, board. You to me, you seem like a guy that never dreamed of moving to Hollywood. No, it just sort of happened, yes. and it happened around this film. Yeah, in particular, right. So, what was it like that first? You're in Chicago. You're going to jump to Hollywood. Were you excited? Were you like, oh, I'm just going to go there for a little while and then move back? Did you ever think you'd still be here? No, I really, I, I didn't know. I all I knew was that I didn't know, and that it was. You know, I, I didn't have any illusions that I was going. I mean, I, I was th- it was in my 30s, so I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to move there and get famous. Like, I had obviously not gotten famous at that point. So I was just like, I'm going to just do my best. And so, no, but I don't, I don't think I expected it to play out the way that it did. So, I mean, I dreamed of moving to Hollywood as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, Hollywood as a bygone era of golden greatness like i don't know did you see once upon a time in hollywood sure yeah i mean just the whole era of that time and point in the 60s -hmm. laurel canyon charles manson yeah all the things that were going on you know hollywood has a very rich occult history as well you know um there was a very famous um base on lookout mountain i believe jared leto bought the property for 50 million a couple Mm -hmm. years ago but people like John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe, they would go up there and cut basically propaganda films. It was an, it was an, an entire film studio, recording studio, right in the heart of Laurel Canyon hmm. on Lookout Mountain. And it was going on at the same exact time as the Laurel Canyon explosion. Yeah. And you know, everybody thinks that the hippies started in San Francisco, but it really started in Laurel Canyon hmm. right here in Hollywood. Those guys sort of migrated up north. And it turned into what it turned into. Yeah. But, you know, it's crazy because most people that wind up out here always dream of moving out here. And you're one of these guys that sort of had a job and you came out and you right. stayed. You right. Know? But Hollywood today versus that bygone era of the 60s and 70s, how much it's changed and yeah. just the culture and the environment. I mean, what is your take on it? I mean... <laughs> Yes, it, it it's it's almost like it's almost uh, is is ingrained in America the American mind this like golden Hollywood uh, as like the Wild West is it's it's just like it's an archetype that we have it's just like you know it's almost a genre in our imaginations but when I moved out here I was expecting very vapid people very plastic people I was just terrified that I was not going to have like authentic interactions with people anymore but it turns out of course that that's not true that there are very awesome people here and um but because i never i never really believed that that shining city existed i don't miss it when i'm here i mean i still when i go to hollywood i can still see some beauty in the history even though there's trash and you know urine and bums and all that kind of stuff um and the TikTok millionaires, because yeah. this is how it seems yeah. to me. I don't, I don't live here, but I, I commute. Uh, you know, the TikTok movement, the younger generation coming up, mm. it's so everything Hollywood never was. The, right. the fourth wall completely broken. Sure. You're just dancing on TikTok and posting selfies. 
and you're a trillionaire yeah and now you you got all these hype houses where you know these kids do these tiktok videos they're taking over yeah and it's crazy because like one of the things that happened recently i wanted to get your take on mm-hmm. was sag eliminated health insurance mm-hmm. and it's a big talking point in the lefty liberal uh podcast yeah but you know it just like if that doesn't say it all yeah. right there yeah. you know and it's, if you'll recall I'm, man i'm just talking so much here but uh, uh robert downey jr because you met we mentioned brian schaefer right he was on Howard Stern not too long ago, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, Scorsese came out and said, you know, there's no cinema anymore. It's just action right. heroes, right. which RDJ got, you know, pretty yeah. upset about. Yeah. And it was a very public thing right. on Stern. But yes. that's, I mean, it says it all. Yeah. You know, that with SAG taking away health insurance. Are you in the SAG after? I, I am not. I'm not an actor, so I don't, uh, I don't deal with them. I am not WGA, not yet. I hope to change that soon. But um, no, I'm not a part of any guild. I mean, um, where do you see the industry going in terms of cinema? We, I don't know. I mean, we, we uh, dictate we dictate that, unfortunately, by virtue of what we consume. Um, when I first came out here, uh, before the, you know, I'd done the script, the script went away to pre-production, you know, as far as I knew, it was never going to get made. And now I'm in Los Angeles and what do I do? Um, I took a job at a, uh, visual effects house, not because I'm a visual effects artist, but because they needed somebody to run drives around a town and, you know, um, drop off footage at labs. Uh, but I was adopted by the grip and electric guys, these old, older gentlemen. And uh, so I started to learn lighting and grip and then eventually transitioned into that world. So I also do key grip work here. It's a weird thing. So, um, I've had an opportunity to work, you know, I'm the key grip for the Hollywood reporter roundtables. So I get a lot of exposure to like these a list celebrities and stuff like that. But I also, you know, I've worked on when vine was a thing. I worked on a feature film that involved like kids who were just vine stars that were just like, now they're, in a movie for some reason and it's a little i mean i don't know between those two worlds of like oh here's you know here's today i'm working with al pacino and martin scorsese i'm lighting them and then tomorrow i'm lighting you know some 19 year old kid who does makeup videos and this is the heart of the transition because al pacino a gifted actor creating art in his own way this is what hollywood was always about the culture of celebrity was you were an artist that had some art to provide to the world sure the the culture of celebrity in hollywood now is just there is no art it's just me and I'm good looking and right. I'm on TikTok or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I am not a cultural, um, I, I'm not like the bellwether of culture or anything like that, but I know that the more and more, uh, we are uprooted from the basic foundation of what makes art allegory and all these types of things, the less inclined we are to enjoy stories that are, that hearken to anything that's deep and mythological because we have no grounding. I mean, my girlfriend uh, works in a public school system here in the Los Angeles area. I won't say where, but you know, it's not in LA, but in the surrounding area, Uh, she's working with juniors and seniors who have no concept of um symbolism no concept of symbolism don't understand like do you see that this is a parallel with the garden of even eden well what's the garden of eden 
Right. I mean, if you don't, if you don't, if if you're not interested in mythology, if you're not interested in that type of stuff, then you're not interested in story. So yeah. it's much more interesting to watch a kid pratfall or you know. It's quick. It's instantaneous. Yeah. Instant gratification. Right. And to quote Quentin Tarantino, you want subversion sure. on a massive level. Right. There's this famous clip where they're talking about Top Gun mm-hmm. and how it's one of the greatest scripts ever written. Would you, no writer would ever say that. But yeah. when you look at it through that lens of, oh my God, this is a story of a man against his own sexuality. Right. right. <laughs> it's the greatest script ever yes. written. And <laughs> subversion on a massive level. Right. You know, the art of writing. And it, I always saw you as a guy who was an actor, a performer, a writer, a director. And then, you know, you wind up in Hollywood on a lark and you transition into a different role, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But as a guy that misses the old Hollywood greatly, you know, I long for the old days of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It's a mythical, magical place right. where you could reinvent yourself, much like Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, and oh, yeah. Seattle was always the outpost for mm-hmm. the last resort for criminals on their way right. out of town. You could reinvent yourself into this. And this is something Jim Carrey talks about a lot where, you know, he's had this whole spiritual renaissance, love him or hate him, Jim Carrey, sure. whatever. But when you create a persona, create a character that you use as a vehicle, you get pigeonholed into that much like Hunter S Thompson or any of these other guys. Right. And you know, the choices you make when you're improvising very telling and you know, once you, once that persona gets out of control, you're stuck and you better be very careful, you know, but that's Hollywood and that's the old Hollywood, the swingers Hollywood. Right. In a nutshell. Yeah. And uh, you know, the thought of cinema going away, I mean, most great indie films are sort of passion projects that were funded by people that had studio gigs or whatever. When that all goes away, what are we left with? I, I, I probably video games is my guess. Yeah, Twitch, Twitch. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it will be either interesting or not at all interesting to see where we end up. I'm not sure. Um, all I know is that <laughs> narcissism seems to be on the rise, and I feel like that's kind of, uh, I mean, you're talking about subversion. I, I have the feeling that I'm a little too old to understand the importance of memes in general, that the kids love to post and trade with each other, but that appears to me to be like their idea of subversion, but... with. Well- to make a callback again, yeah. we're talking. We started out talking about Bagger Vance. Yeah, you can watch it on one level in the ego mind and see a guy playing golf, making free will, free choices. But it, when you really dive into it, the character name, the ties to spiritual enlightenment that you know. Uh, to quote uh, somebody else, because I'm not this brilliant, but you know the um, the freedom from choice mm-hmm. versus the illusion of choice. Mm-hmm. And it, when you really get into what is this place, what are we doing here? Yeah. Am I really in control or is all this happening for a reason? You know, fate versus free will, that kind of thing. It's all, you know, very similar parallels. Sure. That's interesting. Elliot, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I I just said the word narcissist. Then you talked about the uh, freedom of choice. I mean, in some way, that's the dark side of that Kabbalistic tree of life. On one side, you have the person who's given up. Or has surrendered and no longer makes choice and is so and is thus elevated. And then you have on the other side the dark part of that. This narcissism. Someone who's so. I mean, we see it on a political level these days. We see it everywhere. We, you know, if you look for it, you will see it. And a narcissist is 
really just a reactive thing. They don't have, there's no choice involved. You can pretty much play them like a string if you just, you know, you say one thing and they are going to respond 99% of the time without choice, just respond automatically. The robot mind. Yeah. So we're caught between those two different things. Animals masquerading as people. Yeah. Interesting. But what is the scene in the Matrix? The Oracle Delphi. Yeah. Know thyself. That's true. The journey inward. Yeah. Right? Which inevitably leads to you know the disregard the disregard of material wealth right. you know to give up your worldly possessions and realize they don't matter right much like a near death experience where you come back and you say it's the strangest thing i didn't care about this place at all anymore yeah. you know but we're so tied down like gravity to these passions and ideals and the things that you were passionate about as a, as a kid and you thought oh the thought of me as eight, 18 year old Elliot saying, Oh, there's going to come a day where I don't play guitar for months on end. Mm-hmm. I would have laughed at, I would sure. have said, never happen. It'll never happen. Here I am. Yeah. I barely play guitar. I barely, re- I haven't written a song in years. It's just gone away from me, you know? And it used to bother me, you right. know, but it's probably not, uh, of a spiritual level, it's more laziness. Well, it than could anything. be laziness. I mean, it could be. Uh, is, I think it's Stephen King, and on writing says like, uh, when you're not actually writing, the boys in the basement are working on an idea. Stephen so, King, one of the most you know, fascinating people yes. to ever live. So who knows? I mean, maybe maybe you are. I tell you know, when I'm doing the dishes, I can still say I'm writing. I'm just thinking about. I'm either thinking about or not thinking about a story, and I'm either thinking about that story or not thinking about it because it benefits later on getting back to the page. So who knows? Maybe the most amazing song is going to come out of this break that you had. This is the whole lifespan, right? Yeah. You're at a young age, you're a conduit and you think you're a genius, but right. it's really just happening to yep. you. Seth Gibson has a great quote from his podcast where he says, I felt like the songs were just falling into my lap mm-hmm. and that's great art yep. when it, when it happens. Yep. And then you have this whole middle years where you're a corporate slut and right. you're just in it for the money and it just nothing matters. Right. And then you, you finally hit the low, the bottom of the barrel and you have this Renaissance in your later years of, wisdom art whatever you want to call it you know but the path that we're all on you know and people have this uh insane thought that they're going to live after they die and people like create trusts and wills and they say after i die i want this and this and this to happen and when you think about the constitution it's the same thing and in there it says for ourselves and our posterity Mm -hmm. which is our future generations Mm -hmm. But anybody that has a dad, which is everybody, knows, you know, you can only live up to that so far. Most people rebel against it. And once you're gone, it ain't, you don't have a choice anymore. But yet we all have this insane need to sort of live after death and to, you know, propagate or keep keep on our legacy. You know, oh, I've got to create, I've got to hurry, I'm out of time, I've got to create this legacy to leave for after I die. Yeah. Which, you know, when you're really there's a great story it's about a monk and i think it's in korea and i heard it today on a podcast i listened to and uh, he's talking about training other monks and how the, he has a candle and uh, he's like i can put this candle out with my mind and uh, the students go okay you want to see me do it yeah, okay All right, i'm gonna furrow my brow and look like i'm concentrating and then the candle goes out and he says to them would you like to learn how to do that and they say yes. And so they give up. They give up all their beliefs and rationale and they forget their training. 
and they want to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then the next week or whatever, another candle, he's like, I'm going to count down from 30. And when I get to zero, it's going to go out. 30, 29, zero goes out. Mm. And they realize, oh, this is a trick candle. <laughs> and the, the lesson is, is that, oh, you all gave up everything you were yeah. training and believing in, except for two of you who decided, you know, to be brave enough to escape the cave. Mm. You know? mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, it landed with me. No, it's, so. that's fascinating. I, you're right. I think that I think that our early. I mean, as embarrassing as it is to listen to what you played me today, at least I knew that I didn't have any conceit to make money with it or anything like that. I did it with Seth just because I, it came from a place that I felt like it needed to happen. And then, you know, I had some I had some lazy years and some years of like thinking about what's the best way. How am I going to reach a market? And I've kind of just given up with that you know i've given up with that i don't need fame i don't need anything and now maybe who knows maybe something good comes and this is hollywood in a nutshell yeah because everybody chucks their uh, integrity out right. the window to make a quick buck right or to invent a persona to become right. famous or get money and much like jim carrey they get to that point and they go oh i'm still miserable right you know and it sounds so posh and so fucking yeah. entitled to say that yeah. you know oh if only the poor people could realize that you know oh right. my god it's, you can't even start to say that shit <laughs> but you know the old hollywood you know of it just seems like it's gone away yeah you know and it's different and it's it's changed so dramatically to well Here's an experiment for you or anyone uh, who is listening that has an old film camera in their uh, closet. Uh, Go out, grab your cell phone, take a picture of what you think is beautiful with your cell phone, then pull out your film camera, focus, think about the light, aim, fire. I guarantee you that the film picture that you end up having to have developed and wait for and stuff like that is going to be far more beautiful than the one that you just shot off the hip on your cell phone. I mean, there's something about, there's something, it feels like a memory. I mean, it's film, you know, part of me makes, you know, part of me uh, about the nostalgia for Hollywood makes me think it's because it was shot on film. It's because it had a different look. It had a more... uh, intention behind it you couldn't do a thousand takes you only had so much film footage it cost a you know amount of money to burn it so you made sure it was perfect it was beautiful and you didn't color correct you know you didn't do all this tweaking in cinema you know all these graphics and stuff afterwards i don't know uh it might be something just you know we're watching films at 24 frames a second and that feels like a it feels like nostalgia and Watching Star Wars and digital is just not quite the same. It's gotten so good that it's like hyper real. Yeah. And now you long for the old days of actual yeah. realism. Yes. Uh, I mean, greatest iPhone camera, you know, this is the age of computer aided right. photography right. where your cell phone takes a picture, it measures the light, it does all these yep. filters, Instagram, yep. all that shit. Film is, you know, natural. I, I saw a thing online recently. I don't know. It's the world's first selfie. And it's the very early days of photography. Mm-hmm. I'm probably butchering this, but I think it was 1848. Okay. And somebody set up a camera, took a picture of himself. And this is the world's first selfie. Yeah. And it's grainy and it looks like shit, you know. Yeah. But that's how long photography has been around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 
the art of capturing light and the photographic medium, you know, has always been such an art. And you're talking about film being expensive. This is the art of the limitation. Right. I believe a famous Dutch artist, I think its name is they still or something like that. I'm butchering this, but you know, limiting becomes a creative force. Yes. Like, um, a lot of blues guys, they had yeah. one string, three strings, a horrible guitar made the most beautiful music ever. Um, you know, the, when you limit yourself, it forces creation right. in a certain sense. Yeah. And for years it was like that in film. And then we got to the point where digital was so good. You don't even need to film anything. You can literally CGI everything. Right. And everybody's doing green screen yep. and it looks real, but it's not natural. Yeah. And that's crazy. Yep, it is. You know, it, it, it makes me think it's like uh, screenplay writing is so hard, even though it's 90 pages because you are you are confined to a certain three act structure. You've got an idea for a story. Great. It's good to have an idea. It's good to know you're going to write a screenplay, but it's how you work within the limitations of that three act structure, how you fit everything into that 90 pages and make it work that really brings the artist out in you you know just blather you know you don't throw a 180 page 180 page stream of consciousness riff down on paper and call it a screenplay and and the art of writing two stories at the same time yeah. one in the dark one in the light right. and on a surface level it you can watch it and it means one thing right you watch it on the hidden level it means a whole other yeah. thing that is never ever seen on the other side yeah. fascinating yeah it, it, to me, it's just there's. Um, I've been I've been really into Jeff Buckley lately. Mm-hmm. He died at you know a very young age, and um, there's a great concert of him in Germany '95. That's on YouTube. It's Shop Pro. It's got Pro Audio. The this connection you have as a kid with some kind of spiritualness, especially when it comes to creating things, creating music, art, whatever, writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely felt like that. Um, I feel like I've seen a lot of other people that seem to be incredibly creative and expressive at a very young age. And the older you get, the harder it is to hang on to until you have this renaissance, maybe late in life. Um, but watching Jeff Buckley, he's just a kid, you know? But they opened this show in Frankfurt 95. I mean, the, the minute he opens his mouth to sing, he just changes. He's like ethereal. He's like an angel. And But in between sets, it's like immature jokes. And sure. This is just a kid. How, right. how does he have the wisdom of a thousand years of a sage at such a young age? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that is a fascinating question. I, I mean, I, I have the same. I, and, I'm much more closely associated with a, a literary writer than I am with, obviously, a musician. But uh, I know that there's a, you know, it's an old adage. It's like the hook hand in the in the vehicle's door. I don't know where it starts, but I'll just tell you my version of this lie, which is, uh, you know, I, I had a professor in uh, my creative writing class who said, um, do you like the story that you just wrote? And then, you know, hopefully you say, yeah, I do. And then they say, good, because that's the story you're going to be writing for the rest of your life. And I find that that's true for uh, my own hackery. I'm, I'm always telling the same story again and again, just with a different framing. But people like Seth Gibson, who you've had on this show, when I listen to his lyrics, it feels to me like he is uh, he's free of that sort of um, repetition. I mean, he really lives and breathes like organic, just like, yeah, he feels like a sage. Um, And I think uh, that's probably true of more musicians than writers. I mean, let me throw this back at you because I'm actually curious. When you're writing your lyrics, not your music, but when you're writing your lyrics, do you find yourself returning to the same well or not? 
I, it depends on the intention. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of people write art and music, art movies, uh, with the intention of making money or being commercially viable. The really great art is the last thing on their mind uh, to me. Uh, but the, the idea that you are just a vessel through which this some conduit of uh, creative expression flows at a very young age, you think you're a genius mm-hmm. that you're writing all this amazing stuff. And then, you, you know, some of us get older and some of us think, God, where did that all go? You right. know? And why was it like, there's a, you know, a lot of kids that write about love songs that are like premonitions. They come true later in life. They, there's, they seem to be tapped into some kind of source that they don't need. They themselves don't even know that they're tapped into just kind of happens mm. and everybody you know but this is the, this whole idea of the death of the ego what is reality are we really who we think we are i mean what is the point of all of this um and you know what what is life without art and right. you know I, I think a lot of the greatest writers you know they sort of are inspired in a flash of creativity and it just comes to them in a dream or all at once you know in this flash of inspiration right. and to be incredibly ambitious too requires youth you know yeah. because the older you get you got more to lose True. and it's harder and harder. And speaking of incredibly ambitious for those who don't know, Seth Gibson, you guys collaborated on a very uh, intense project <laughs> a number of years ago. Yes, we did. At the time I had no idea what you were trying to do mm-hmm. and it made no sense to me. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but this is Jesse Stratton and Seth Gibson mm-hmm. for anybody playing along at home. Um, they, collaborated together on an enormous project of great ambition Mm -hmm. full of intense lyrics and music blending together in sort of an audio play i guess is the best way i could describe it it was called it was it was called tristram's slumber tell me what that means oh god you're gonna test my uh you're gonna test my age and my and my mind um i honestly (laughs) <laughs> I had a reason for that at one point. Uh, Tristram was uh, affiliated with the Knights of the Round Table, I believe. And really, the, the story is um, leaving me. He went off on some kind of quest, leaving behind his lover. Um, and I believe that... God, dude, this could be totally wrong. I believe when he was, when he was returning... If he had, if the ship that he was on had white sails, he was alive and victorious. If it had black sails, it, he had died. And in some way or another, I believe that the wrong sails were lit- raised, and she killed herself. And then turned out that he had lived. And then he sort of, it was a Romeo and Juliet sort of situation. So. Well, and uh, this is a callback to your professor writing the same story. Yeah. Maybe there really is only one story. <laughs> it's always the same in many different shades, many right. different forms. I knew this project as ectora that's right yes what what does that mean oh god dude i don't even remember why we named it that the fog of time has obscured uh obscured that for me i can't remember but both you guys as very young 20 somethings working day jobs uh somewhere on the east coast maryland or maryland new york Mm -hmm. um with a nothing but a four track a guitar no money no. and just pure ambition inspiration and creative drive developed this flash of inspiration that wound its way into this album <laughs> yes now the only files i have are of horrible quality i'm going to play a couple of my okay. favorite songs okay okay i don't want to leave they're never going to let me go after this shh come here 
So that, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense when you hear it the first time. But if you listen to it enough times, and this is what I was going to get at. I don't, do you remember the first time you played this for me? I don't. No, I okay. really don't. It's etched in my mind because really? I felt so horrible uh-huh. that it, I traumatized myself. <laughs> you played a, a handful of selections in, when we were living in Fredonia. And my initial reaction was I thought you were doing a comedy. Uh, sure. Sure. And I didn't get it right. at the time. It didn't make any sense. Uh-huh. But revisiting this over the last year and, and listening to how deep and, you know, the stuff you're writing about is just like what we're talking about. The same old story, uh, you know, warrior going off to fight a battle to come back, you know, um, right. love, um, death, sure. all these deep themes that, you know, you would think as being 20 years old. You're just, you know, you're just not mature enough to really understand. But when you actually, you know, read those words and you listen, you let them sink in. Right. If you give yourself the time to to listen to it objectively, 
this is one of many songs, but it, it's just a great, incredible undertaking in terms of recording, yeah. which is where I'm fascinated with it sure. because you have a lot of different voice actors. There, you, you obviously you wrote the entire thing before yeah. you even recorded right. a lick of it, right? Which is a, it's a lot of dialogue and it's a lot of writing. And the marriage of Seth Gibson, who composed the music for yes. this, really, you know, it blended well. If you give yourself the time to sit down with it, to me, looking back on it. It gets better with time, and I'm I'm finding a whole new appreciation for it that I never had before. Wow, Elliot, I didn't realize I, I appreciate appreciate that. Well, I'm curious to know how you feel about it looking back because I know a lot of songs that I wrote 20 years ago. I can't even listen to oh, them. Oh yeah, I hate them. Yeah, no, that was painful. That was that was that was very painful. Um, it's it's you know, I'm not a musician. I, I uh, that album was done by virtue of Seth's. Um, his willingness to get on board uh, and you know just the my mania and and not i think neither one of us realized the uh the undertaking that we were you know it was one of those just we we moved a mountain by virtue of not realizing we were attempting that feat you know that initial spark the genesis you had this this burning candle this burning flame i have to get this out into the world it's inside of me I'm going to express it that to me, it was like, you know, Seth didn't have that because he didn't write the project, but when you brought it to him to compose music for it, it's like one candle lighting another. And then you guys are both, you you have this both dual flame of creativity. Yes. And and I, whenever stepping on him, he, he was allowed to kind of do, I mean, he brought life to it. So. One of the things that impresses me most about this record is your incredible Foley work sound effects footsteps doors closing you go for a drive you hear the car you hear the radio (laughs) in the car none of it you ripped like you can do today today you can get online you can get samples for all this stuff and if you have the kind of creative drive that you had back then it's incredibly easy to do something like that when you guys did this you had to record everything Mm -hmm. every little thing and the song i'm about to play i think really uh, exemplifies the marriage of musical composition, Foley work, incredible writing dialogue, and uh, here we go. The second demon came with nothing, masquerading as the American Mecca's source of repentance. She came to the budding priestess queen knowing she feared the power she was wielding was vain and corrupted with greed. The second appeared homeless. Inspire pity to shake confidence. With bizarrity, plant the seed. Murderous intent in the garb of the most wretched and innocent. Dip is that, you know? <laughs> Do you have any change? Get out of here. I have some change. Don't. Don't encourage these fucking bums. She's a human being. Here you are. Oh, child. You have a gift. You're wasting it. What? Your friends. Your friends at home. They're bad for you. They'll use you. They will. 
Open your eyes. Did, did you take these? Hey, fucking no, what's the same? Nothing to do with 
the hell you guys ever pulled that off on a four track <laughs> we're talking multi-guitar tracks yeah. many voiceovers i mean all the foley stuff for anybody that's not a boomer like us that doesn't remember four tracks you had four tracks yeah. it was a cassette tape you could bounce mm-hmm. right you could yeah. bounce three tracks to one but then you've only got three tracks right. and now you do another two tracks you can bounce that to one and then you can bounce both those to a single channel it's a mixing nightmare <laughs> and to mix all that that cleanly on a four track maybe it was an eight track i don't know do you I, remember i think it was a four track uh i remember uh, as i recall seth was doing it on the fly i think we were moving out of the apartment fairly soon maybe even the day after he mixed it down and he was just sitting there the, through the whole project just turning knobs as it played through it is just, it fair to say seth mixed this entire he mixed it on the fly yeah as it played he just mixed based on what he remembered was happening on uh, on each track on the four track and yeah the whole album i mean an incredible undertaking yeah anybody uh, that knows four tracks will have a deep respect when you really listen to all the things that are going on on that and you know when you do bounce you lose quality right things start to get a little jumbled the reason why that is skipping is because the only copy i have came from a cd mm-hmm. which if anybody remembers cds they used to skip like that yeah and when they, they would do that when you were burning them into your hard hard drive that's the unfortunate case uh in this particular example i i think that yeah i think probably the only existing copy of it is probably the cd actually i do i think i i think i have the original four track tape still i still have that original recorded four track well 525 records would love to house that as Uh, yeah i'd gladly hand it to you okay please yeah um you know i'm building kind of a library of alexandria master tapes and that's one of them that would be great to have it's yours yeah I mean, when do you remember starting to write this record? Oh, um, God, I don't. Uh, I don't remember. Yes, I do. I do remember um, sitting down and just. It was. Uh, I was just trying to find my. I was trying to find my equilibrium again, and I gave myself uh, the liberty of writing bad poetry, and so that was it. I just wrote bad poetry, and then it was you know, and then. 
some dialogue and I was like, Seth, let's just do this, man. I mean, and, and I convinced him to do the first song on the album, which was sort of a, as I recall, it was like a, just kind of a Celtic sounding guitar piece. And then, uh, hey, let's just do one more. Let's just do one more. And by I think the third day he realized he'd signed up for something even bigger. So yeah, I, I, it was just a bunch of poetry that I would never show to the world now, but I was crazy enough to. Exactly how I feel about every song yeah. I wrote yeah. when I was that age. Yeah. Were you? Did you have a Kubrick style in your head before you even went to the page? I, I largely had an idea of where it was going to go, yes. I mean, I, I didn't really realize what I was attempting to write, um, and I did not write well, which was... Uh, it was what I thought was a beautiful relationship. Uh, and then looking back on it's like, oh, no, that's highly dysfunctional. You would never want that kind of... Like, just because the stakes are so high, just because you're... You know, you you feel like um, there needs to be drama all around you. That's not really a real thing. So, it, you know, now now looking back at it, I'm like, I have the exact opposite of that, and that's it's wonderful, you know. But at the time, I was like, oh, I'm gonna write a I'm gonna write a story about real love, you know, because you know so much about real love yeah, when you're 20, at 22 or whatever, you know. But so. I mean, such is the cycle of great art. I mean, when you fall in love, that's the the muse of many an inspiration inspiration and creative outlet also when you break up a grand divorce yes is also the same inspiration only the yin and the yang sure. the exact opposite yeah and uh yeah yeah it was, it was to be young and in love exactly it was a post-breakup project and i'm glad i exercised it you know it was uh so yeah it was uh seth uh, is the one that made it i mean really uh, that thing you could use not a surgeon's scalpel but a butcher knife to edit down some of the stuff i contributed but the stuff that he did is just incredible i mean it's some of the craziest guitar work oh my god that you'll ever hear in your life yeah. who writes that i stuff? know i know and, you know the thing is he just like i can't play a lot of the stuff that i think i was good at the time uh, you know i have an open e song on welcome to fredonia which nobody's ever heard but you know it's crazy open tuning mm-hmm. total improv couldn't play that again if i tried <laughs> seth i know for a fact could not play no, that again if no. he tried yet at the time it just flew like yeah. water you know yeah. out of him and uh, i mean it's some of the most intense crazy just experimental composition sure. it's just a guitar yeah that's it yeah it's a dude and a guitar and a microphone and, it, and it's and he incredible. carries it yeah. it's incredible it really is the yeah. note selection and how well it fits you know he has this dial tone tone where it's like a feedback for mm-hmm. a minute and it sounds just like a phone yep dial tone it's yep. like and yeah i know because i know him I know he didn't plan that. Nope. It just happened. Yeah, he's just, it was inspired. I mean, he, he blew me away every time. But yeah. did any dialogue writing occur after the start of this recording? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Yeah. No. I mean, that's, that's incredible, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. We're, let's do some DVD director cut okay. commentary on this sure. one. Sure. Uh, the keyboard was done by a girl whose name I still remember, though she wasn't a friend of ours. Her name was Allie Hotmer, and she was a music major at Catholic University. And we just kind of approached her all wild-eyed, lack of sleep, like, hey, you play piano, right? You're in my like my math class? And she's like, yes, who are you? I'm like, I've got this project I need piano for. Would you mind? And she, she came over to the place like for four days and, and, and laid down all the keyboard stuff for it. It was, uh, it was cool. It's the one and only song with keyboards, right? Yeah, uh, I think so. She may have touched on a couple other um, parts in the album, but this is largely the one. Yeah. Um, there's a point at which... I, what I like about this, and not being uh, 
as musically inclined. Uh, what I love about this particular piece is that the guitar and keyboards sort of slide slightly out of uh, tempo and then catch each other again. It's got a very strange dreamlike feeling about it, which I really liked a lot. So. I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. You kiss me and ask me something. Be quiet. And this is Allie's voice, by the way. She did the voiceover stuff as well, like a real champ. Spoiler alert, there's a guitar explosion in this Oh one. my god, there is, yeah. The synth harmonies. Yeah. It's like Van Halen 1984 yes. with yes. crazy guitar. Oh, that no kills me. I know. You know how limes fall out of sync slightly, you know, when your partner is just like not on the same page and you he's like, Yeah, start to play this, you know, two guitars that are not quite and then it resolves and they're just like, Oh, yeah, exactly that. Well, and there's a there's a Portuguese term uh, that's in Bossa Nova, it's called desifinado. It's slightly out of tune. Uh-huh. That's exactly what this is. Yeah. And it's not always desirable, but sometimes it really works. Yeah. This is a riff on a terrible song that I wrote that uh, the tune um, Seth is doing the solo version of that. Well, you know, getting into music theory later in life, almost a lot of great songs are binaries. Yeah. Like Eminem 8 Mile. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's just two two things. Now, this one is not a true binary. Right. The main theme of it is binary. But it makes so much sense on a you know metaphysical level, or whatever you know, two lovers, yin yeah. yang, day, day and night, you know, positive, negative, I, it just it's corollary. Yeah. Seth Gibson. I know. Can do that. I know. It's like two guitars making love. That's with what he. That's w- what he was saying. He's like, I'm doing it, or I'm going to reach these guitars into the state of orgasm. Um, and the synth is the mattress. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's what he was going for, and you can hear. I think the. I think you'll know when the uh, moment of climax comes. It's the tension, the ascending tension yeah. is palpable, yeah. you know. Ah. 
this is the the Tantra plateau. Yes, this is it. Coital cigarette. <laughs> this is the kind of shit nobody does anymore. No, right? Everything's so in your face, and the mediums are all so visual. Right. You know, this is the age of three three channels on uh, antenna television. Right. Oh, let's. Uh, yeah, we're, we're twenty years old. We have nothing better to do. Let's try to write a song that embodies, paints a visual picture of two lovers right. making love, right? Without using any visual or even auditory or like um, dialogue in that whole process. And oh yeah, no big deal. Well, we just, that's just that's, whip that up out of nowhere. Yeah, that's how crazy we were. And as much as it is painful to listen to for me, uh, there are moments where I'm just like, oh, you know, something was happening there. So. That's kind of the best you can hope for, I think. And nobody, you know, it's a five minute song. You got to sit there to get to the payoff. Right. You know, nobody has that kind of time anymore. anymore. This is in the age of TikTok. You think this would ever fly? Never. Not in a million years. This is why art needs to be preserved because when the machines take over, (laughs) then there are no more Picassos. (laughs) Speaking of which, I saw this Picasso video yesterday. It blew my mind. He's he's painting in real time, black Mm -hmm. and white, and it starts out as a flower. He draws three flowers, and then he draws an outline, and it becomes a chicken, uh-huh. and it's uh, then it beca- or it becomes a fish. I'm sorry. So he, uh, the flowers turn into the scales and the gills, yeah. and then before you know it, it's a fish, and then he draws a chicken head, and now the fish tail looks just like a chicken mm. rooster tail, and it becomes a chicken, and it's mm. this morphine art. You sure. know, it starts one way and it just morphs in real time right before your eyes. That's AI machines are never going to be able to do that. And, you know, the deeper we get into this mechanized world, the more of a premium there's going to be on this kind of art, I think, personally. Well, I hope so. This is easily the most commercial song on the record that you could play for your parents. Like, oh, this is really good. (laughs) The playground. Come on. No way. You're not getting me on that thing. Come on, silly. You're amazing. Rose and once again descended. 
dainty toe is peeking brazenly from sandals, now modestly curling as rubber soles just barely scrape the spinning earth. And she is rising once more. Smooth bronze legs extending the childish band. Oh, you're canceled. <laughs> Listen to those harmonies. Ain't no auto tune. That's that's all Seth, right? No, it's me and Seth. Okay, who's doing the low part? Uh, play it. Turn it up. It's like, I believe I'm the lower end. Emerging from a silhouette. These are barbershop Motown girl group harmonies. Yeah, which you know. Not easy to pull off. Well, we're attempting it. I, I think I think it's less than perfect, but I do remember we were recording those at the very end. And uh, Jesse Vaught, who was our roommate at the time, was leaving for work at like six in the morning and passed by the room while we were standing there, singing those harmonies and looking at us and just shaking his head and thinking. Big shout out, Jesse Vaught. Yeah, Jesse Vaught, what's up, buddy? buddy? Always the intellectual. Yes, and he thought we were, and we looked crazy. We certainly were crazy. He was like, he was like Google before there was Google. He really was. He knew everything. Yeah, he was a brain. Children play about the two when he feels Um. Not a well. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, nobody's ever heard it. I probably not you either. But I, I um, secretly recorded Levi, yes. who nobody knows. But I, I want a copy of that. By the way, oh, I've got it. I can give it to you. You can. Yes, we had this crazy kid Levi. He lived with us for a little while. But Jesse Vaught one night was over at the house, and I was taping covertly because I love to do that because I'm like a big covert dude or whatever. But uh, I got Jesse Vaught talking about they got into this argument about nucleus and proteins and amino acids, and it, he's just so measured and. And calm, and he's just going through all the scientific stuff. It's so hilarious, it's dude. Jesse Vaught, love you. Whatever happened to him, man? He is in Western New York, I believe. Uh, last I knew, he was the head chef for a restaurant, a kind of a hoity-toity restaurant on the lake. Somewhere. He was always the best cook. Yeah, he was. Great. He used to broil those sandwiches, yeah, man, man. Remember? Yeah, he he's a great cook, and that's what he's doing, I believe. Yep. Well, we just talked over that one. Well, but anyway, I, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I, I always liked that. That was the my that was as far uh, poetry wise was my least has always been my least cringy one. Whenever I hear that one, I'm like, eh, no, it's okay. It's just about a girl on a swing. If you did this to me mm-hmm. and you're like, Ellie, we're gonna sit down with all your '90s it's, songs. It's painful, man. I would walk out of this I, room. It's painful. I'm gritting my teeth, you know. But well, you're a trooper, I, you. and this is the beauty in the eye of the beholder uh-huh. life is relative we're in our own little reality bubbles we think we see the world the same way but right. until we collide reality bubbles you know it doesn't really become apparent yeah i see this at the time when it was recorded i had no understanding i didn't particularly think it was like as I, I, it was impressive that you guys pulled that off but i didn't really appreciate it sure and now i i'm here you know because i'm archiving everything for the label i'm listening to all this stuff over and over and over and i'm like my god this you know it's like caviar it starts out salty or whatever you know i don't i've never had caviar right. what's a good example <laughs> sorry all you vegans but uh something that you know it's an acquired taste yes it definitely is and then sure. once you get it you're like hmm yeah this is gourmet yeah. this is a delicacy yeah well, I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, mission accomplished. Well, I think uh, we'll end it on that. Jesse Stratton, thank you for doing the 525 Records no. podcast. It was a blast. I'm so glad you came out and did this in the middle of the end of the world. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a lot of fun.